1: Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Good day, good day. (laughs) Yeah, we're back. Uh, Bruce Strong... This is uh, happens every, I don't know, so often. Every fortnight, every, as I understand. Yeah. Uh, and it's live. We are live in the studios in Pacheco, in the uh, the rainy uh, Pacheco studios this time of yes, year. Yes,
2: rainy, fly-filled. fly <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Right. The big piles of poo that are in the studio are no, attracting flies. No, the beer. Oh, no. That open, was,
2: open containers of beer. That's right. the thing.
1: That was the people listening.
3: No, no. No. Um, I think Palmer's become really proud of his new Australian friends. In the last episode, he made us convert everything to the metric system. Right. And right. this episode, he used Fortnite. Fortnite. Uh, the yeah. Bunch of good mates down there. Yeah. yeah.
1: I like it. Taking care of your brothers. Taking care, t- taking care of your brothers. Yes, yes. Uh, well, what I was going to say is, uh, if Train you get a chance, you're listening live. Uh, which you can do, you know, all these shows are done live. This is and all taped and edited and then uh, broadcast. Uh, we do podcasts after we do them live, but you can listen to them live. And the, the way to do that, go to the uh, www.thebrewingnetwork.com and uh, you can listen live there if you're a podcast listener. It's real easy. There's uh, a little bit of software to download, but it doesn't do anything weird to your system and doesn't, uh, you know, start generating ads or anything weird like that. And uh, you can also chat live. You can participate in the show. Uh, we answer some questions at the end of the show, and we uh, we encourage you to go get in the chat room and right, ask those right. questions. And there's other people in the chat, like minded like you, and uh, they'll answer some questions or you know, just a, a good time had by all. And that's. Uh, uh available to you as well from the go to the chat uh click that chat button on the on the uh, homepage uh while you're there take a look in the store the store helps us keep this programming flowing so you can get really cool uh, hop grenade shirts Yep. I don't think there's any Bruce Strong shirts right there right now, but you know that's that's Justin. He's you know he's, he's a little threatened by the show, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you can get a Hop Grenade <laughs> shirt, which I really like. I wear it to, to pretty much every beer event I go to. I'm either wearing a Bruce Strong shirt or a Hop Grenade shirt. Yep. I think I did my Got keynote speech uh, in Australia wearing Hot Grenade shirt. Uh, the, the, the numbers in the, in the store, right, uh, are currently all active. Get to the store. Get yourself a shirt before they're gone. They're gone really quick. There's uh, uh, Brewing Classic style signed by both. John Palmer, and Jamil there are, uh Next week, you're going to see some glassware, BN glassware. I love these. I'm going to start dumping a lot of my other glassware so I can have these at these home. These are nice-looking glasses, uh, and they're a good size, too. Yeah, my wife, My wife. you like that it's a good size. Huh? Okay. That's right. my feels good in the hand. My wife only allows me a certain amount of glassware, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to just dump a bunch of glassware to, to start putting these in there. I like these. These are
3: very nice. I, I like the style of glass. I love the logo, of course. People want to make sure I didn't get those tumbler glasses, the iced tea glasses. Yeah, no, no, no. Those things that a lot of people think are standard beer glasses, but they're not. No,
1: these are the. I, I really love these one. Uh, you know, for you call the, these? Like the they're not I call pilsner them pilsner, pilsner glasses, but I you know, don't they're know. Not, the they're their not. They're not pilsner glasses. No pilsner. People assume is the uh, the the tall one that flares out consist- consistently all ah. the way to the top. Mm-hmm. This is um, like not a German. The, not the tulip glass. Um, no, tulip glass has a bulge in it. It's You'd a, get
3: a Hellas serve to you in this if you were in Munich.
1: Yeah. I think this is a great all-around beer glass. I'm so glad you chose this one. Great. Yeah, uh, yeah, you too. know, the, 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 the English uh, tulip glass is a, a, a very good overall, but uh, when you tend to go lagers, I'd like something a little narrower so it doesn't get quite warm. Uh, but this still has a good, you know, the 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 top closes in a little bit to help trap some of the aromas, concentrate the aromas. Uh, overall, they're, they're probably one of the best choices. Yeah, it's seriously, my, it's my not, favorite not style glass too.
3: Yeah. All right, it's one choice. Uh, yeah, I bought year. a bunch of the good. Gordon Beerish glasses. Uh, because they were this style, Same. and that's where I uh, literally I, I just stole it from Grand. Right. Beer. If you, if, I love that if style. If you
1: if you try drinking a lot of different beers out of that style of glass, yeah. this is your best all around glass. It really works for almost every every style of beer. There's some that you need a thinner glass with more of a bulbous shape at the bottom so you can warm it more. Mm-hmm. But the majority of beers will do really well in this glass. I think that's a great, a, a fantastic choice, and uh,
3: available yeah. this week.
1: Yeah, there you go. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked, uh, you know, uh, previously you talked about how I was going to, uh, Nashville. I went to Nashville That's for right. the, uh, uh, music city brew off. That should have been a good conference. It was. And I- I'll tell you, the people there were fantastic, you know, uh, good great, great, brewers great, down there great, great group yeah. of folks. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I think the, uh, no offense to the, uh, professional brewers there. They're doing a great job. But the homebrewers there, kicking some ass. <laughs> I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. I went to this guy's uh, bunker. Uh, they called The Bunker. And, <laughs> uh, you know, a very impressive brewing setup with, like, a lounge and, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. I mean, it puts, puts anything to shame that I've seen in most people's uh, places except maybe Dock. <laughs> and, uh, and they served me some fantastic beers. One of the beers was this Doppelbach that I could find nothing wrong with. I mean, the only thing the wrong with is my glass kept getting empty, so there must have been a hole in the glass or something like that. (laughs) And uh, I was exhausted. I, I, you know, I didn't get much sleep the night before. I got like two hours plus the plane trip. So you know, and uh, I still stayed till like two thirty in the morning. You know, sucking down glass after glass with this doppelbach. That was uh, one of their late members. uh, And I can't remember his name now. It's just they told me make sure you remember his name, which was Ed. uh, I don't know. They'll they'll call me and let me know, and I'll mention it again on another show. But Fair enough. Uh, you know, there was and, and and one of the things was there was a guy there who was like the tasty of that Nashville. Club. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and the, that was the first place that I started to realize that every beer brewing group has its own
2: tasty. Taste yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's got its own tasty, and uh, I think you know our tasty is the best, mm-hmm. but uh i was really you know impressed with this one guy <laughs> i can't, you know it seems like it was years ago so i can't remember any, anybody's name and I'm, i feel so bad about it but um i could see the guy's face i'm good on faces i'm really bad on names but uh you know this guy he had me try like you know uh several of his beers and each one i'm like oh wow that's really tasty <laughs> that's <laughs> really good I mean, this is how tasty got his name you know yep, yep. <laughs> tasty beers and uh uh, you know i was very impressed overall and and one of the things about this event is that uh the proceeds go to charity to a child's charity hmm. so they're not taking in money so they can have some drunken bus tour right they're not taking in money so they can buy you know uh you know more equipment for the the club brew house they're right. taking the money right. so they can give it away to benefit people that uh you know, are less fortunate than themselves, and I think you know if if everybody, you know, so I I don't want to get on <laughs> clubs, but uh, if you got a, a a sizable club that can put on an event like that, yeah. you ought to think about you know donating the proceeds to charity. Yeah, you know, do something good good out of it. I, I think I mean, a
2: lot of clubs, you know, they figure let's let's kind of operate as a non-profit and mm-hmm. let's you know <laughs> let's break even, keep the costs low for people want to participate. Right. But, at the same time, I mean, you and I both know that i mean brewers, very generous people very you know with their time and so on and uh you know they don't mind you know kicking in a little bit more to you know attend these things and and Absolutely. and even with the charity. bad
1: economy with the bad economy yeah uh you know more time than ever to uh contribute to the charities i know it's it's rough uh, when everyone's flush and contributing to you know one tragedy or another mm-hmm. it's uh the day to day tragedies in life, that children suffering from diseases and things like that that yeah. don't get a lot of attention that uh you know, something like the the folks in Nashville are yeah. doing a, a really uh, spectacular job. I'm very I was very pleased to uh attend and I was very uh uh very uh touched by, you know, uh this group of, of individuals. They uh you know, they really uh, have their heads and their hearts in the right places and uh very proud to have been part of that uh, whole event. I went there. I, I spoke at dinner after everybody had five beers and, and a full and a, just a delicious dinner. Were you supposed to? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They asked me to, and I'm like, "Well," and, you know, people nodding off in the crowd. You know how I speak. Ah, nobody wants to listen to that. <laughs> and uh, you know, then uh, I was uh, just, you know, just just uh, exhausted by uh-huh. by the travel and stuff. I can't go east. I can go west. You know, by evidence by our Australia trip, I can go west. I can go west with the best of them, baby, but uh, East, I can't do. but uh, I had a great time, and it was a great group of people, and I think that uh, you know we should all uh, uh strive to be uh, so uh, so kind and generous in our lives. That's a, that's a that's great true. thing. Those guys yep. should be real proud. All right. today we're talking about malt analysis. Yep. how how do, what do you get all these malt
2: analysis sheets
1: I'm right just... right so uh, if you're buying your 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 grain a, a pound at a time from the home brew store you may not ever see these but the every every uh, lot of uh, malt has a malt analysis sheet and this is you know mainly for the bigger Brewers to you know they're worried about you know uh, one point in uh, you know uh, yeah, the, extraction the potential efficiency. right uh, is going to affect them uh, you know ten thousand dollars or something yeah it's their bottom so, line right. right so so that's real critical but you know how does that play into uh, you know the average homper what 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 do you do what uh, what really matters right so I got a, a email from uh, Bobby. And he said, uh, hey, Jamel, I'm fairly new to all-grain brewing. I'm trying to dial in my mash efficiency based on what I suspect the PPPG, right, Right. of my malt is. I'm using the default values in ProMash right now. So this guy, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. He's paying attention. He knows that it's PPPG, right. not uh, PPG or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> I'm using the default values of ProMash right now. My question is, how do you determine the PP G value of the particular malt you use. Do you plug in the malt analysis into ProMash or do you just use the default values for each particular malt? I'm wondering if it varies from each maltster. For example, is all domestic two row always 1.036? Ah, yeah. Just wondering what your thoughts on this are. So, uh, what I thought we'd do today is uh, we've got uh, Bob Hansen from Rees malting. malting, and you're quite the expert on malt analysis as well as I.
2: Well, am. I, I sat at Bob's knee for quite a, quite some time, Bob and <laughs> well, Dave. What's Kuske. that got
1: to do with malt analysis?
2: <laughs> it took me a while to figure this stuff out too. But
1: uh, no, no, no. But uh, we both know Bob real well. he's, yeah. he's a wonderful person, uh, real humorous. Uh, I actually hung out w- with him at uh, uh, the hop school at, up at Hop Union. And uh, he's, 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 a, he's a wonderful person, very knowledgeable. And uh, he handles uh, you know the production of extract at Bree's Malting. So he knows quite a bit about what we're talking about. Yep. professional Anyways, brewer, too. Yeah, professional brewer, uh, award-winning professional brewer as True. well. Yeah. Uh, great guy, and we're, we're going to have him here, luckily, to talk about malt analysis and everything that means. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get together with Bob, you listener questions and somebody <laughs> some somebody yeah all that, right that's what that said right bobby bobby oh bobby. Right. Right. right Okay. right yeah. we'll be back after this
0: brew right brew smart brew strong this is brew strong
4: He's is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Cut hours off your brewing sessions by using one of their 11 varieties of famous Williams malt extract. Their Williams German Pills is mashed with pure German Moravian two-row barley malt for a light blonde color and malty Christmas you just can't get from other extracts. Or check out their unique fermenters, draft beer equipment, bottling Aids and more they even have their own line of precision hydrometers go to williamsbrewing.com to browse their vast selection and enter promo code brew at the order checkout for five dollars off your next order over fifty dollars orders placed by 3 p.m ship the same day again go to williamsbrewing.com and enter promo code brew at checkout for five dollars off your next order brewing is easy the williams way
5: what have you gotten out of a vial of white lab's
4: yeast WLP 001, Cal Ale, baby! 23, Burton Ale. 008, East Coast Ale! Cal Common, WLP 810. It's gonna be WLP 400 with beer!
5: I got a sweet hoodie for my vial. Huh? White Labs, your source for great brewer's yeast. would like to invite all homebrewers to join the White Labs Customer Club. Redeem your empty vials for great White Labs merchandise and products. Free yeast, glassware, T-shirts, baseball caps, sweatshirts, polo shirts, and you won't believe what you'll get for 5,000 vials. Members also receive a newsletter packed with White Labs updates and facts, interviews with professional brewers, brew your own clone recipes, beercook.com recipes, and customer club stories the white labs customer club save your vials and get in the club white labs it's all in the vial live beer radio the brewing network
3: If you're just starting, don't be discouraged by all this stuff. It's exactly. so easy. Just throw it yeah. together. Dude. Put you're some sugar enough. and some water and some yeast in there. Yeah. It's beer. <laughs> <laughs> Network.
0: Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is is Brew Strong?
1: All right, we're back. We're talking about malt analysis and what it means to the home brewer. Sure. And uh, I've got here with me my, my my partner in crime, John Palmer, and on the phone we have uh, one of the one of the, my favorite people in uh, in brewing and uh, and a, a great friend to home brewers, uh, Bob Hansen from Brees Malting. Yeah, you you Bob. Yeah. Hi, Jamil.
6: Hey, for great hi.
7: intro.
1: Well, thanks. Well, and here's speaking of great interest, I was just remembering. and I know people complain about me waffling on uh, for too long, but I, <laughs> the, I think the first time I met Bob was at one of the homebrew conferences. Bob uh, spent a lot of time coming out to the homebrew conference in, right. in the U.S. and uh, presenting some great information and being uh, available for homebrewers, which is really nice of him. But uh, I think the first time I met him, I was like, okay, you know, I got to introduce you to the for this topic. And uh, I was going to introduce the speaker, and I said, I thought I'd, I'd set up something. I don't remember how we got into this, but I, he was like, well, you know, uh, you know." I think you pretty much left it up to me, but I told him, I said, I think I want to do something a little bit uh, unusual. <laughs> and Bob was cool with it, and I introduced him as uh, the person to set the, uh, the, uh, the solo crossing of the Antarctic uh, record, speed record. <laughs> and uh, he basically did it with malt extract as his... Uh, was human food source right
6: Food source of fuel I remember that <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's always good to start with a joke so.
1: well, the funny thing was everybody in the crowd totally bought it I think I mean there was maybe one <laughs> or two people that already knew you that, that that knew you didn't do that but everybody else was like oh wow dude dude knows how to work some skis yeah you know? <laughs> <That's> great <laughs> that was great and people to this day probably still believe you hold the uh, the solo crossing of the Antarctic uh, record.
6: Yeah, you know, I think you're just a bit too dry in your delivery. Say, yeah,
1: <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. Anyways, uh, so you've been you you're always one of my my favorite people, and I, I I really love seeing you at the conferences, and it's so so good of you to join us here to talk about malt analysis because I know I know you know a lot about malt as well as uh, uh, John Palmer here. So uh, let me kick it off. You know the, this. Uh, uh, listener was was asking you know what do i do you know as far as you know particular malts you know do i what number do i key in off of this malt analysis into ProMash? you know is it really important to do that or should i just pick with a, a, a stick with a default value how much do these values range on the malt analysis is if i pick one uh, intermediary value is that okay or should i worry about you know whether it's a few points one way or the other uh let's let's uh, let's kick it off with uh, Mr. Palmer here.
2: Okay, well I guess um I'll I'll start off by kind of defining the PPPG or points per pound per gallon uh number that then you know that of course that's not a a value or a, a term that's used in professional brewing but it's one that homebrewers use because we're used to reading hydrometers as opposed to refractometers uh typically. And uh, what it means is um, how many Pounds of uh, malt extract or malt do you put into a volume of water, uh, or to make a wort, and uh, and what gravity do you get it from, get from it? So this uh, this brewer was asking, um, you know, with a, with a particular malt, uh, is is two row domestic two row always uh, a 1036? That is, in other words, 36 points per pound of malt. Per gallon of wort, and uh, Bob, I think you can probably take it from there. You know, uh, are how how similar are uh, all you know two row base malts um, across the across the spectrum like this?
6: Well, you know, they're all pretty similar. I think it. Uh, you really got to look at what kind of accuracy are you expecting, or what kind of accuracy do you need? I think uh, a lot of the value in the brewing calculations are really for, you know, rough value and getting your your recipe approximately right. Um, You know, when you you start to worry about the variation in them, I I think it's usually the bigger brewers who are really measuring their brew house efficiency and, you know, um, uh, gaining or losing uh, hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars based on the errors or the differences between one batch of malt and their ability to uh, properly capture it. Yeah, small so. well, brewers, you know, I'm not sure it, you know, it, it has not much meaning other than it's always good to understand your efficiency. Two rows will, in general, um, vary uh, not only from, um, I, I would say, uh, supplier to supplier a little bit, but also um, they're going to vary based on uh, breed and more importantly uh, crop year, where you'll see things like some years if there's a real bad crop, you'll get high proteins and uh, result in low extracts.
1: So this is something that's critical to you at Breez because you want to have a real consistent product so people year in and year out can expect your extract to to provide the same uh, uh, specific gravity and you know the same fermentability and all that and you're 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 totally on top of this I know right that that, that that's something that's a given but in the homebrew setting it's probably more critical you know the amount of uh, uh, you know your your mash to water ratio, or you know how fast you're sparging, or pH, or any of those other things. Is, is that true, or or am I uh, oversimplifying?
6: Well, I mean, in general, I, I think you're right. You know, the yield of a malt, it's not going to vary so greatly that I think at a home brewing level, you're going to um, need to adjust your recipes and most recipes that are written that you see from home brewers are are just written based on pounds of malt they they don't ask you to take into account of the yield um i would say that from a home brewing point of view and actually even from a big pouring big brewing point of view um, how efficient you are at getting that extract out through good sparging or, 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 or you know good mashing techniques is maybe more important to what you get out than the actual you know malt analysis that is what the malt gives under ideal conditions does that make sense
2: yeah I guess one one thing I kind of forgot to mention was the conversion from uh, gravity points to the kinds of numbers that we see on a malt analysis sheet um, the the uh, most typical number that we'll see on a malt analysis sheet to describe the amount of extract we get from a malt is the what's called the extra extract fine grind dry basis and that's a percentage by weight um when you if you take um, a standard such as uh, sucrose or white table sugar that ha- that contributes uh 46 pounds per point per gallon or in other words you dissolve a pound of that into water to make one gallon of sugar solution and that will have a hydrometer gravity of 1.046, um, we ratio that against the uh, extract fine-grind-dry dry basis number of, say, 80% for a two-row uh, brewer's malt. And so 80% of 46 works out to about 36 uh, or 37. And uh, that is a number that we would see in ProMash and other brewing software is like the maximum extract we could uh, pers- uh Extract from from that malt, Uh, and there we have the and from that point we look at our brewer's efficiency. You know what? How much of that maximum extract does our system or does our process uh, yield? And typically, our uh, our efficiency will be like seventy, seventy-five percent in the homebrewing world. Is that is that right, Bob?
6: Yeah, so that sounds about you know to be. I mean, I think most home brewers are satisfied with that type of efficiency, um, and I, I think you you summed it up uh, pretty well in terms of um, you know, the fine grind dry basis being being the one number that's important. I think actually, I mean, quite quite realis- realistically, um, it's more the as is numbers that are truly more meaningful for the brewers, the ones that take into account the moisture. Um, and the one that usually is the most meaningful is the is the coarse grind as is that typically tells you the the type of yield you should expect to get out of a, out of a grain,
2: yeah, so like fine grind dry basis is your theoretical but your your realistic maximum is the coarse grind as is you're saying
6: so that, yeah that's correct and, and the well except for the dry basis is actually it removes um it, it's more of a it's really just a calculation and it removes the variance of the effect of fluctuating moisture. And really all those yield numbers, it's kind of crazy that as a maltster, you're actually supplying four numbers, four standard numbers for yield. Um, and maybe to, uh, to just break those down quickly so that you know, uh, homebrewers can understand why there's four of them and, and really what they mean and how they're relevant. There, there's two main types. There's a coarse grind and there's a dry basis and as is, and then there's a fine grind. And again, dry basis and as is. And the coarse grind um, is—it's actually, if you were to look at a coarse grind, and I think John, I think there's some pictures of what a coarse grind looks like from a lab grind in your Mm. book, if I remember correctly. That's right. Um, It's actually what a home brewer would consider a very fine grind. The grain's pretty busted up, but it's you know representative of of, uh, you know the the probably as as fine of a grind as a brewer would want to run through a louder ton.
7: Mm
6: -hmm. Um, So that. Those mash analyses are really relevant to people who are running louder tones, and I, I think all all you know home brewers are really running louder tones than that that I'm aware of, or you know something similar to that. Fine grind is actually a flour. You grind the grain all the way down to a flour, and you you make a mash out of it. and You get everything you can out of it, um, and it's representative of the yield that you might get if you were using a a fine filtration apparatus like a, a mash filter, uh, which is another means of solid like. Uh, solid liquid separations used by brewers. And that's one of the big reasons for having both a fine grind and a coarse grind is it relates to two types of common brewing equipment that are used by very big brewers. Um, then the, the, the as-is is basically that's the malt as it is. That's what you would normally expect to get from a malt, whether it's coarse grind or fine grind if you're brewing with it. The dry basis number is basically one that... Um, you generate from the original analysis of yield by just removing the effect of moisture so in a finished malt you might see the moisture fluctuate a couple percent say from four to six or or in extreme cases from say three to seven Um, as a, a customer a large brewing customer you could look at that and say well you know the yield is down but then if you look at the dry basis analysis you'd be able to say well actually if it weren't for the effect of the moisture, which is off by a little bit, this would actually be malt that yields a very high
7: amount. Right. So
6: the value of that of those dry basis numbers is, you know, it's it's more used as a quality analysis tool for people who are trying to um, figure out if if it's good malt or not, than it, it is really to be used as a, a lot to lot comparison. Predict- yeah, or for predict. Well, it's good for lot to lot comparison, but it's it's not good for. Predicting what your yield is going to be because no brewer practically, you know, bakes all the moisture out of the malt first before he uses it. You know,
1: so uh, that, that's one question I have is, uh, you know, uh, let's say I buy a, a couple of sacks of uh, two row and I store that in my brew shed in a in a trash can in a in a plastic bag. That's that's how I do it, and uh, it starts out a certain point in moisture and you know water being uh, quite heavy. I imagine if it just gains a percentage or two of moisture over time, uh, that's going to throw off my measurement quite a bit, right? So if I uh, weigh out, uh, uh, you know, 10 pounds of two-row when I first get the malt, fresh from the maltster, versus, uh, uh, you know, six months later after it's, a, I'm living in, uh, you know, sunny Florida where it's really humid and it's picked. Picked up a lot of moisture, then, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'll see my efficiency drop, right? And and how do I how do I deal with that? How do I counter that? Is is sealing it in a in a plastic trash bag effective enough?
6: Yeah, you know, I, I, Jamil, it's it's unfortunate that you, you have so little respect for your mouth that you're storing it in trash cans and trash bags. But
1: um, <laughs> I actually I'm sleep with it, but but my wife got angry. Okay, oh,
6: hey, well, that sounds that's more like what I do. So um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but I mean, not, now you're getting in really into into a malt storage question, and um, the, the ability to malt to pick up uh, moisture from the air is really based on the relative humidity of the air in the area that you're in. So yeah, if you're in you know dry areas, it's you know you can store malt really in a bucket with a lid. But if you're anywhere where you get higher relative humidity, say you know really even above 30 percent, because malt is a fairly low relative humidity product and you store it open it can pick up moisture from the air and when it does that it gains weight right so you weigh your recipes out based on a weight and you know you may look at a coa or an analysis of this malt well if the malt picks up three or four percent or maybe five percent moisture because you're living in louisiana and yeah like you said storing it in the open um you will lose that much um you know basically To to figure it out, you would divide by um, you know the you take the the weight and basically um, multiply by I think it would be uh, one plus you divide I'm sorry you divide by one plus the uh, gain in moisture. So, but then in general, roughly you could say a one percent increase in in um, uh, moisture would roughly you know reduce your yield by about one percent or about. Point eight percent. So yeah, if you pick up uh, four or five percent moisture, which is kind of an extreme case, you know, you Mm -hmm. will lose that much yield as well. Well,
1: because they dry these malts out fairly aggressively, right? And uh, they try and get them down to you know four or five percent. And some some of these places in the country are very humid, very soggy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Florida. Uh, Mm And I can imagine you in Louisiana, like you're saying, that you could pick up quite a bit of of moisture, enough to enough to throw you off a few points in in your uh, Doppelbach or something like that and, and wonder why this malt isn't producing so great, right?
6: Yep. Um, and, and uh, you know, r- really, what would happen with malt is that, you know, it will absorb moisture and really it's true of any food product or, or anything. If, if you put it a low relative humidity product in a, without a moisture barrier in an area with high relative humidity, it'll suck up moisture until it reaches equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Almost anything will spoil above 80% relative humidity. Above 80% relative humidity, you can, you can basically grow mold on anything, on walls or anything. So, mm-hmm. um, but to give you an idea, so most grains are dried to 12% moisture, which is, ends mm-hmm. up being about 80% relative humidity. Mm-hmm. If, um, if a malt were stored at 80% or 70% relative humidity, fairly high relative humidity, in a, un, without a moisture barrier, it would pick up, um, it would go from 4 or 5% moisture all up to 12 eventually
7: mm-hmm.
6: um so in, and that could make a significant dent in in what your yield is so you know big big brewers uh in those silos and they move their malt routinely but in a home brewer who's got it in an open container is it's really prone to maybe picking up moisture and seeing some of those bigger variations so but you know, you do have the even though you know the, the container might not be the most glamorous um you have the right idea if you store something you know a food product or, or, or malt in a moisture barrier bag in a sealed container um, you wouldn't expect its quality to decline or to pick up moisture
2: how how long could um, we expect a malt to last in, in that kind of storage a year two years well,
6: well um, shelf life or lasting is kind of a, 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 a funny issue if, if it was a good moisture barrier you could expect it not to really ever pick up moisture um, Malt, in general, over time, um, as a a seed who has sprouted and then been forced into dormancy, you know, through drying, um, will start to lose some of its enzymatic power over time, even if stored nice and dry and cool. Um, It will just naturally happen. So the general rule of thumb is uh, if malt gets to be over a year old, you know, it's going to start to lose its enzymatic power. Um, now, with modern day malt with its high enzymatic power you're, you know you 're probably still good unless you 're doing a fifty percent adjunct brew or something pretty aggressive to keep it longer than that, but in general malt would you 'd want to use it within a year
2: one question i 've had is uh since you know malt is kind but of that 's
6: for that 's for enzymatic malt I mean, yeah the the specialty malts that are, are you know dark roasted they 're more like coffee their shelf life is you know almost infinite okay. Um, the flavor might degrade a little over time,
1: and and does moisture play a role in that? I, I've always had this assumption that the higher the, the moisture content, the easier something will oxidize, or the, you know that the moisture plays a role in oxidation. It's a, it's almost like a catalyst for oxidation.
6: Um, yeah, moisture does does play a role um, in oxidation. There's a again, there's a term. It's, it's not just the moisture; it's really more the relative humidity of the product. Mm-hmm. And various types of oxidation are, um, you know, have minimums or maximums at uh, uh, different relative humidities. And actually, um, very moist products oxidize faster, and very dry products oxidize faster. No. So, hmm. malt you're lucky is in an area where you know it's kind of at a minimum.
2: Mm-hmm. One one question Should I've had, Bob, is that you know, since malt or enzymatic malt is kind of a living organism, does storing it in the freezer uh, degrade it?
6: Uh, no, not really. Um, it's probably better than, you know, other storage. Um, in that I guess I would say temperature's not bad, but I think, you know, that freezer storage, uh, you get things like freezer burn, and, uh, you know, um, it, it wouldn't necessarily be any better than cool-dry storage, put it that way.
1: Oh, okay. And it can suck the moisture out of things as well, right? That uh, a possibility? I know the enzymes it, won't won't degrade for... The temperature, yeah. but I guess
2: I mean you know, yeah, we're we're still assuming oxygen or uh, moisture barrier bags, plastic bags, and so on.
7: All
6: right. Yeah, as long as you have a moisture barrier bag that's a good moisture barrier. Um, yeah, it won't it won't suck the moisture out. But yeah, it, you know
7: um,
6: everything moves to a state of equilibrium in terms of relative humidity. So if you don't have a moisture barrier bag, you know, um, yeah, malt will suck moisture out of anything. It's actually a very low, a fairly dry product. I mean it's. When you think barley or wheat flour or wheat, you know, normal grains are about 12% moisture. They're about 70% relative humidity. Malt at 5% moisture is, you know, it's below 30% relative humidity. It's actually a fairly dry product. So if you ever, you know, commingle or store and mix them together, they'll suck the moisture out and move to, you know, a relative humidity equilibrium.
1: See, this is why I love having you on the show. You know so much. Every time I've talked to you, you've, you you just blow me away with with not only your knowledge of the, the science behind things, but how you've thought about how they apply to brewing and typical brewing scenarios. Not only professional, which I know you're you you, you you're very well-versed in, but you seem to really pay attention to what the home brewers are doing. I really love that. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to get into uh, some of the other numbers on the uh, malt analysis. I, you know, i look at that and there's a whole spread of them and i wonder you know diastatic power or you know uh, some of those other things you know what what do they mean to us as homebrews we'll be back right after this keep
0: your carboy cap on this is Bruce strong we'll be right back
5: What's good for the earth, good for your body, and great for your brew? Organic ingredients. This holiday season, the Organic Ingredient Experts Seven Bridges Co-op in awesome Santa Cruz, California, offers you the gift that keeps on giving to our planet. Sustainable, fair-wage ingredients to make the best organic homebrew you've ever had. There's a growing demand for organic products, and your choice to brew with them supports organic farmers worldwide. Brew organic, and you'll brew excellent beer that is free from chemical residues and genetically modified organisms, and you'll help contribute to a better world. If you're looking for organic ingredients, Seven Bridges offers a huge selection of USDA certified kits and raw ingredients from 8 ounces to 50 pound sacks of grain, whole and pellet hops, and all the equipment you need. Seven Bridges, the organic homebrew experts since 1997. Visit www.breworganic.com. Attention, homebrew shop owners at Fermentap. They know you're tired of buying the same old gear that everyone else has. That's why Fermentap offers the newest and most cutting-edge brewing equipment known to man. Since 1998, Fermentap has been leading the fight against the boring and mundane by offering strange, unique, and just plain smart equipment. Like their stainless-domed false bottoms. Never deal with the floating plastic hassle of other false bottoms again. And since they're made from stainless steel, they'll last a lifetime. Fermentap's line of copper... Wart chillers are the best on the market, designed to cool your wart faster and more efficiently than other immersion chillers. They actually invented the equipment to make these chillers not only work great, but look great too. How about a fantastic line of ingredients, including vanilla beans, sorghum extract, blue agave extract, hop bitterness extract, unique wine yeasts, green coffee beans, sake kits, all stuff you can't find anywhere else? Fermentap carries all the standard products and equipment you need as well, such as all grain systems, stainless hardware, kettles carbonation stones, you name it, they've got it. Fermentap's entire line of products has been helping retail shops meet the demands of their customers for nearly 10 years, and they want to help you, too. For more information, see them on the web at Fermentap.com or call Jason at 1-800-942-2750. Fermentap, better beer through innovation.
8: Did you know that every day a brewcaster goes to bed hungry? Did you know that that brewcaster is silently calling for the help of people just like you? Do you know that every day the unicorn and the rainbow have to blow sailors for loose change? For less than the cost of a half-calf, quad shot, venti, extra hot soy milk, triple pump, hazel, low-fat foam, double-cupped macchiato a day, you can help starving adults in Pacheco. Your love can be felt for as little as seven cents a day. Visit thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate to sign up today for as little as $2 a month. Private first class in the BN Army. Buy your way up the ranks as corporal, sergeant, ranger, or colonel with an easy-to-do monthly donation that keeps brewcasters alive and your favorite internet radio station broadcasting. No donation is too small to help those in need. Can't you find it in your heart to share your love with a brewcaster? In return, you will enjoy the wealth of knowledge that comes with every episode of the session. The Jameel Show and Yes... Even that other show. Thank you for listening, and please sign up for your donation at thebrewingnetwork.com/slash donate today.
3: You're listening to The
4: Brewing Network.
0: Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew
1: Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking about uh, malt analysis, and you may ask yourself, well, oh, you know, why does malt analysis mean anything to me? Don't I just you know throw the malt in the in the mash tun or?" Why you know, do Steve, I need to know Steve, this? Yeah, you know, why do I need to know this? Well, yeah, you know, we've got one of the uh, foremost experts on uh, everything malt and uh, even everything extract, and this guy Bob Hansen from Brees, he knows everything extract and everything you know, brewing with extract and brewing with grains. He knows it all. Award winning uh, uh, professional brewer and. Uh, you know, one of the smartest people I know in the in the brewing industry. So we're very lucky to have you. Thanks, Bob, for uh, uh, spending some time with us and, and getting these things uh, answered and helping out our, our listeners. Uh, so before the break, uh, we had been talking about uh, some of the things on the malt analysis. And I, I think I'm remiss here because usually we like to start off with kind of a... Uh, uh, a definition of what we're talking about. I don't think we did that. What, uh, Bob? What is an a malt analysis? What is the? I see it. It's like a whole list of numbers. It's like a whole sheet. How do I get it? What is? What does it mean? Should I look for it or should I just ignore it? What tell us about? It.
6: Well, I, I, uh, well, I guess I start where it's generated. A whole lot um, um, when malt is made, you know, to make sure that it. it it meets certain you know quality primaries designated by brewers. Of course, we analyze it, and the ana- analysis is basically a, a sample, uh, a snapshot of the entire lot. Typically, it's an auto sample that generates everything throughout that you know, batch or kiln, you know, whatever was made. And we run it through all the analytical tests that would be relevant to both brewers, big and small, so that anybody who's interested in if this malt will perform their, the way they're interested, or the way they want, can look at that. Basically, analysis which is issued on the COA and make sure it's going to perform the way they expect or make adjustments uh, if it's not.
1: Now, should my homebrew shop provide me this or just if I ask them for it, should they provide me this or not at all?
6: Well, um, again, we started to address that a little bit in the beginning. I I would, you know, there are homebrewers out there that are just advanced probably than any of the bigger brewers. That exist in terms of what they're expecting out of their system and what they want to be able to predict and control, and and the degree of accuracy they want in their recipe formulation. Um, that said, the average home brewer um, really wouldn't be too concerned with um, you know a malt analysis sheet of a specific lot, as long as that lot you know was released by the maltster. It's normally guaranteed to be within. The specifications that the maltster provides, and you know, perform as people would expect.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, oftentimes, the the thing that a a homebrewer would be most interested would be actually the analysis that's listed on a um, a typical analysis sheet, and that's what they're most likely to see. Uh, you know, whether it's grease or, or any other maltsters, all of this Uh, normally on a yearly basis based on crop year, we'll issue a typical analysis for our malt. And that would be the average values that we expect our malts to fall into for that year.
1: So regardless of uh, the the crop year, Brees puts a a lot of effort into adjusting their malting process and all that, so the final product is as close to... Kind of the center point of of what you expect, so you can go year to year to year, and regardless of what the environment's doing, you're trying to keep it pretty close to the same. So I I don't have to worry about it, is what you're saying. Look at it once for a particular malt you, you're choosing to use, but then trust the the talent and and science of the maltsters to to keep it pretty close to to center. Is that is that uh, accurate?
6: Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and they, and that's why most homebrewers can you know completely successfully brew. Um, and get all the calculations they need just by using typical analysis, not ever actually needing to consult the lot to lot variance. Uh, the lot to lot variance is really more important for uh, you know I would say larger brewers that are you know to whom those those variances can can make significant differences in in their for example their yields um, or uh, their colors or or in the case of uh, you know making an adjunct brew with fifty percent adjunct uh, small variances in the enzyme power they may want to adjust for somehow in their process
2: mm-hmm. yeah let's um well, so what are the some of the other numbers that we would see in a malt analysis sheet besides you know the the extract numbers we just discussed you know which tell us <coughs> you know how much soluble extract you know or, or how how great a uh, rise in a gravity we're going to get out of a particular batch of malt um, I noticed that there's I'm looking at a, a brief malt analysis sheet right now and it has uh, protein S slash T alpha amylase diastatic power, color I mean, uh, what's with the protein and ST there, Bob? Um,
6: Well, you know, protein and S over T I kind of all relate to each other in that there's three actually numbers on there. There's total protein, there's soluble protein and then there's S over T. Okay um, S over T, that is the soluble over total, is there, and there's several of these numbers that are on a malt analysis sheet um, that are basically an indicator of did the maltster really do a good job of of germinating this grain, and is it expected to um, uh, give good performance, especially in you know abusive situations like high adjunct brewing. You have to realize that you know most of the grain, and and really even the um, the malt analysis sheet that's normally generated by maltster is really tailored towards very large breweries. And that's why in the beginning of the show you asked me about points per gallon or things like that. From a home brewing point of view, that's the number you'd want to see on a, you know, a COA. That's the analysis you'd really like to know. But unfortunately, big maltsters and even small ones, we, we don't report that number. We report, you know, basically what the, the big brewers are expecting. And the S over T is a number that's used basically as an indicator of. Uh, how well the malt was modified during the malting process. So um, maltsters, they want to really be able to look at that uh, malt analysis and predict any problems that they're possibly going to have.
2: Yeah, Modification kind of drives how much mashing they need to do or what kind of mashing they need to do to get that um, extract?
6: Yeah, it it also has to do with things like how well things like um, non-starch polysaccharides like beta-glucans and pentazans are degraded. Oftentimes, okay. you'll also see two numbers on there. Um, like you'll see a beta glucan number, and you may also see a work viscosity number. And those again are maybe predictors of, of of brew house performance. In the absence of those two numbers, though, you'll see you know S over T, which basically tells how you know if and normally that number a good range for S over T might be say. Uh, normally you see it to be about 0. .4. If it gets to be above 0. .5, the malt is considered normally over-modified. If it's below 0. .3, then it's really under-modified. Um, and of course, maybe you want under-modified malt or over-modified malt, that's a different story. Distillers, for example, want, you know, high enzymatic, fully modified malt. Um, people who, you know, want more of a European style may want it slightly under-modified, but it's an indication of the modification. Um, and to a normal home brewer, what does you know what does that really mean? Um, I wouldn't say it really has a lot of relevance to them. Uh, total protein gives you, uh, and SFT also kind of give you an idea of where or why the yield in the malt is is low. Um, if you think about the, the two greatest factors that'll affect the yield in malt, um, the first is the moisture. You know, higher moisture malts will have less yield, as it is, right. and. Um, the second one is the protein. Um, if you take a, a percent protein in, in malt, you know barley could easily vary from say 10 to 15 percent. You know, in a bad year for for uh, bad conditions, um, protein. That protein under normal um, conditions then is only say 40 percent soluble. That means 60 percent of its loss. So if you see the protein vary by two percent, that means your your yield's going to go down 1.2 percent. Okay. So big brewers will very carefully look at uh, protein, uh, soluble protein, and then S over T. They'll look at total protein because they want it to be low, um, because higher protein is basically lost for them. Uh, they want a certain amount of protein because the protein ends up becoming the enzymes, so, but higher proteins are lost. So they want low total proteins. Mm-hmm. They want soluble proteins that uh, you know, will give an S over T to show that the malt's pretty modified. Are you know about forty, uh, say forty uh, percent soluble?
2: Well, I, I know that uh, some like some European brewers. Um, I was at the craft brewers conference this past spring, and uh, some of the European brewers were talking about they want a low protein malt. Um, they felt it had better flavor. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, is there uh, any story to that? Or
6: yeah, and, you know, there's there's a lot of things that go with higher protein and. Higher protein, higher soluble protein, both those lead to higher colored uh, malts. Um, Well, actually, it's just soluble protein. It really leads to higher colored malts through increased myriad reactions. Um, And and color and flavor go hand-in-hand with the myriad reactions that make malt. You know, we've talked about that a lot in the past. So, um, and you do see differences. And and that's one of the differences between a two-row and a six-row. There's, you know, for, for, for specialty malts, the differences are smaller for for uh, base malts or kilned malts, the differences are a bit bigger and that two-row malts are lower in protein. Uh, they tend to have a cleaner, smoother flavor. Um, you know, if you're trying to generate the same color with a low-protein malt, you'll kiln it at slightly different conditions, and, you know, the flavor will be slightly different. Okay. Uh, now, whether it's better or worse is really a matter of, of preference, you know, and really what uh, you know, somebody's trying to do with it.
2: So. It's Yeah, it's the beer you, you actually brew with it, you know. That flavor. Um, What about uh, diastatic power? How does that? What's that, and uh, how does that uh, play into this?
6: Well, and like in general, you you guys have been asking, how does how does you know malt analysis really relate to a home brewer? He'd want to know that he's going to get a good yield out of it. He'd want to see what the color is because the color can kind of vary within you know um, with enough variance that it may affect his recipe if he's really trying to be tight. And you'd also want to look at the diastatic power. Uh, the diastatic power and the alpha amylase; um, those are both measures of you know, the enzymatic power of the malt. And if they get too low, uh, it, it may not be possible to convert the malt under a, a normal mashing regime.
2: Yeah, so one those thing that's very important. Yeah, well, I mean, I think as home brewers, we tend to brew a wider variety of styles and use. And you know, in some cases, go overboard, but we tend to use more specialty malts, more non-enzymatic malts uh, than uh, most big brewers, and uh, potentially uh, more adjuncts in a lot of cases uh, than a professional brewer. And so, the diastatic power, I think, would is is kind of uh, important to us, where we're trying to convert uh, a lot of starches, such as uh, say rolled oats or flake corn or, uh, you know, uh, maybe some of the more specialty malts. I mean, um, is the, is that the case where we we need to be con- more concerned about diastatic power or um, is the diastatic power of uh, domestic two-row and, and so on, is that high enough that it's uh, probably not a concern for us?
6: Well, again, it's normally based on, you know, that malt being produced by a malser to their typical analysis and, and being released by their quality department, it'll be, you know, the two-row will be fairly consistent, and year-to-year, batch-to-batch, you know, will, will give brewers good results. The of power is just one that, you know, especially for home brewers, um, needs to be taken into consideration uh, when, when they're all-grain brewing. You're right in that um, smaller brewers or home brewers oftentimes will brew with more Adjuncts. Now, it, those adjuncts may not necessarily be raw grains uh, or you know flake grains or pre grains. They may also be non-enzymatic specialty malts, caramel malts, um, high-temperature kiln malts, um, you know that have been like Munich twenties that have very little enzymatic power, um, and those may be a high proportion of their, their overall grist. So, modern malt um, is so enzymatic that it's hard to actually control it and people who try to control fermentability by controlling their mash temperatures are often disappointed in the degree of of control they can affect because the malt is so enzymatic these days uh, that you know it just converts right away the exception to that though is you know home brewers a lot of times try to do very aggressive things such as brewing a, a, a beer with 100 percent munich malt which you know can be done um
1: yeah I, but, I do that
6: right and <laughs> but when you do that, you need to pay attention to the diastatic power because uh-huh. it can vary fairly widely on the ten mu uh, ten Munich malt uh-huh. um, so uh, you know you're going to want to try to get a lot that's higher on the end if you're going to go for a hundred percent and you're going to want to use step mashing and have good control. You can't just you know go in and do a single step high temp with any old malt and, and have that work out for you it just it just won't convert
2: what do you th- what do you think cool. of minimum diastatic power? Uh, would be for like for a situation like that where you're doing like 100% Munich I mean 30 40 50 in terms of the the dp
6: yeah yeah um typically well there's you know there's the dp and the alpha families kind of go hand in hand um and normally what I would say is that you know you try to keep the uh you try to keep the alpha families at least at about a 50 and uh and then have sufficient diastatic power to convert. The alpha is the one that's really going to kind of, you know... Uh, I'm sorry, actually, I got that backwards. Uh, you want to have a diastatic power of at least about, uh, I would say, about 50. Okay. And then um, and sufficient alpha amylase there to, to really get the job done, too. So you got to kind of look at this. So if you look at, like, a typical Munich 20, it's only going to have, you know, maybe a... Uh, a 20 uh, in terms of the DP. Um, and it's not going to have enough to convert itself at a 100% usage rate. You're going to have to use something else. A typical Munich 10, well, you know, you should be able to get somewhere in the 50 range or, or fairly close to that. Um, and then, you know, and then if it's lower, you're going to want to modify your your mashing regime to allow for that. That is, you know, longer times at lower temperatures and definitely using step mashing.
1: That's what I was going to say. Is it just a a matter of uh, increasing time is your friend in in getting these things converted, right?
6: Uh, Well, to a point, because, Mm -hmm. you know, that... You, you need, and I think John, you've got some good graphs in your book. You need both alpha and alpha and and uh, DP to get the job done. Mm-hmm. Alpha is really kind of your workhorse. It you know hacks and flashes at the starches and, and makes pieces so that the diastatic power can work. Um, if uh, it, it, it is very possible um, that you can give it you know a very long amount of time, and if it's at higher temperatures, you'll have deactivated the enzymes that you need. So to get the alpha to work effectively, you want to be at higher temperatures. Um, but at those temperatures, oftentimes you're deactivating the beta amylase, or you know the total starch degrading power, which is measured by the the diastatic power. So, I mean, one way to think about it is that an average you know mega brewer is limited at using about 50% adjunct, uh, 50 to 60% you know starch that they are needed to convert. And a normal base malt, then, of used by these guys, a two-row, six-row, it's about, you know, 140, 150. So they're kind of limited. Once they get below, you know, if you, if you do the math on that, you end up being, well, right around, say, 50 to 70. I That's see. So if you've got, you got a
2: diastatic power of 150, uh, you mm-hmm. could have, you know, um, 66% adjunct or non enzymatic adjunct 33%, you know, 150 DP, and end up with uh, 50 DP for the for the total. And that should, right. that should take care and, of conversion.
6: And you should be fine. Uh, again, the big brewers they're trying to, you know, crank these batches out at, you know, 12 to 14 brewers per day. So their conversion step can be limited in terms of time, where, you um, know, home brewer or a small brewer, you can get as much time as you want, but practically, once that DP falls below you know, your recipe average falls below 50, you really got to be careful in what you do. Above that, you're, you can typically get away with, you know, various, you know, almost any mashing regime. But below that 50 DP, as a recipe total, as a recipe average, you you run into trouble.
2: Or at least you have and to be more are, concerned about there it.
6: There are some things. I would say, you know, you start to get below 30 and you really, you know, you're talking like four or five hour mashes and you can start to have other problems. So <laughs>
1: Okay. All right, so we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to get uh, more into the malt analysis sheet and all those interesting numbers on there and what it means to homebrewers and the quality of their beer.
0: Keep your carboy cap on. This is Brew Strong. We'll be right back.
7: Amen.
9: pregnancy and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked so what are you waiting for stop hiding and start living with tequila
0: back to your hosts jamil zanishef and john palmer putting the testicles in technical this is brew strong
1: All right, this is Bruce Strong. We're talking uh, malt analysis and what it means to uh, brewers. We're, uh, our expert guest is Bob Hansen from Breeze Malting, And uh, we were just going through uh, diastatic power and a couple other things on the malt analysis sheet. Uh, I've been drinking a lot, so I'm not really sure where we left off. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Bob? Are you having a beer while you're doing this, or uh, no? That,
6: yeah, uh, he actually recommended that uh, he did uh, that I do one when he called. So I popped yeah, up an uh, Imperial Hefeweizen here, which oh, is really
1: oh, nice. Well, uh, we 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 recommend that uh, uh, all our listeners drink heavily because the show is much funnier and we are far more attractive when <laughs> when when the listeners drink. Imperial Hefeweizen is that your recipe, Bob? I think uh, I think I recall that uh, your Imperial.
6: Uh, well, we, yeah, we have a pilot brewery here, so yeah, it, uh, I. I uh, yeah our original recipe but uh we didn't definitely didn't invent the style but uh it, it was it was actually th- I wanted to thank you guys too uh before before we get off the air for uh calling me tonight cuz um the kids are just, like, cranked up on Halloween. Halloween candy. Candy? Yeah.
7: <laughs>
6: and I'm supposed to be putting them to bed uh, with my wife, but um, uh, because uh, it, it, I'm doing it's, this, it's work. So I'm able to lock beer. myself in a room and I drink gotta a beer yeah. and talk
1: smart. <laughs> I got to so work.
2: I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Sweet. Yep. Glad we could help. Glad we could help. Oh, uh, well, let's see. Let's get back to the malt house sheets, I guess. So far, we've covered... Um, the uh, the extract fine grind coarse grind um, we didn't really touch on the extract uh, fine grind coarse grind difference, but that's that's pretty self-explanatory that's the di- the percent difference between the two numbers and uh, we also and that, l- pardon
6: if you, if you want if you wanted to we can kill that one real quick too that's also a measure of modification similar to s over t. So each of those numbers has a meaning within themselves, and uh, the fine grain coarse grain difference is a measure of modification. You like to see it below one. If it's, uh, you know, if it gets higher than that, it can start to indicate, uh, you know, undermodified malt.
2: Um, because the, that means that you means you'd have to grind the malt uh, finer to to in order to get ac- get have the enzymes get access to the starches, right?
6: Um, yeah, basically, and, and what that means is that, you know, then things like the non-starch polysaccharides, the beta-glucans, pentazans, these things that are going to make it hard to get the extract out of the malt and potentially cause lautering difficulties, haven't been degraded. So um, one of the reasons there's so many numbers on, on a malt analysis is that in these big brewers are trying to find any number they can to predict brew house performance and unfortunately there's not a silver bullet number that will guarantee that you know someone's not going to have laudering difficulties each one of these is a little bit of a piece of one so lower s over t means you know uh the malt was maybe under modified and could give some problems but not necessarily okay um higher fine course difference would also indicate that the malt was maybe under modified and may cause louder difficulties um, but again, you know, not necessarily. There's not uh, a single number. Even things like beta-glucan that you can hang your hand on to say that, you know, this will definitively, at least within a certain range, um, you know, cause me a problem or not.
2: So it's all just a list of indicators.
6: Yeah, and any of those, if they get way out of whack, you know, if something's really wrong with the malt. Because, I mean, here's a here's a good example. You could get a batch of malt in that, you know, just Five or ten percent of it did not germinate, you know, because it's a natural process, and for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, it doesn't germinate. So it doesn't grow at all. And it's you know, growing these beds. The rest of it grows great, but this five percent doesn't grow at all. And you can have malt with high enzymatic power, good yield. You know, might look like it's going to perform very well in the brew house, but all of a sudden you have all these lautering difficulties.
2: Is uh, is an indicator of that? Uh, phenomena that would would that be the uh, mealy half and glossy number percentages? Yep,
6: that that's another one that you see that's trying to indicate you know how well the malt was modified. And again, you want to see you know you'd like to see it all mealy. You don't want to see glassy because that means that that's basically malt that did not grow. It's basically like barley because barley is glassy. You know, so, so if you
2: try to that, bite it, it would break your tooth rather than bite in half.
6: Right, just like barley versus malt. So you know it, it, you know. All those are kind of indicators on um, kind of what was happening with the malt. A lot of the big numbers that you'd normally look at—enzymes, yield, things that you're really going to build your spec on—you And you could still have good numbers there and not have good brew house performance. And again, this is a lot. This is really for big brewers who are doing, you know, 50% adjunct brews and trying to crank them out in, you know, an hour and a half. So it's not quite as important, really, for a home brewer. Really, again, mostly home brewers are going to rely on the typical analysis, but here today we're, we're here to discuss all these things, so we'll kind of go into detail and, and the uh, fine course difference is really used primarily as an indication of modification and how well the brewer did their job and if there's anything else going on there that isn't in the analysis. Okay, because you you can still, on a, on a big brewing basis, we still. Because here at Breeze, we we've got a big brew house. We have a big five hundred barrel brew house. We still get these mysteries where we get in, you know, malt that according to the analyticals should be great, but you know the, the results in the ton, it's, you know beg to differ. I
2: see. Uh, can you comment on uh, how malt has changed over the last hundred years? I mean, you know, we and we here as uh, as consumers. You know, we we hear about finest Moravian malts, and uh, you know, uh, and you know, malts used to be less modified, and we have we need to do decoction um, or versus single infusion. I mean, uh, does the malt analysis sheet uh, shed some light on this for us in terms of making those well, decisions?
6: It, it would if you looked at um, uh, you know malt analysis over the years. For sure, um, and you also see it when maltsters um, duplicate maybe more historic styles, things like pilsen malt, or um, uh, things like pale ale malt, where they're kind of using more traditional techniques. They may not fully modify these malts, maybe higher or lower kilning temperatures, you know, more traditional techniques. One of the, the things that most people aren't aware of, or you might not really think about, is that. Really, um, in the United States, um, there's certain breeds. There's a continual breeding program to make better and better malting barley. Malting barley is not um, such a great uh, risk-free crop to grow that has a high economic advantage, and, and that's one of the reasons we've seen all the problems in the supply recently. Malting barley is a bit risky of a crop, so they're continually trying to go through breeding programs to improve it. Those breeding programs are really driven by uh, a group called AMBA, the American Malted Barley Association, that's really driven, you know, primarily by uh, the big brewers who are looking for something completely different in their malt than small brewers. You know, big brewers want the highest yield and the most enzymatic power and the lowest price. And, I mean, the flavor is important to them as well, but those other factors are, you know, probably their biggest driving factor. So malt, um, malted barley, uh, is continually made from varieties that change throughout the years and uh, improve. But the standards by which they improve are really based on industrial brewing standards. They're not based on things like color uh, or some of the subtleties of, of flavor um, you know, that, that so. might be important to a craft brewer or somebody making craft brewed beer. So, uh, from time to time, you'll see one of the specialty malsters may get in a um, a uh, uh, or, or start producing from a historic variety or something like that. But it, it's actually difficult to buy that barley because you need to realize as a brewer that malsters, we buy barley, and somebody's got to grow that. And in order for the farmer to grow it, someone's got to go to that farmer and give them a real economic incentive to to grow an old variety of barley that, you know, uh, doesn't have disease resistance or lodges or doesn't have a good yield, uh, because they like the flavor better.
2: Yeah.
6: I see. That doesn't happen very often. Really. Uh, most of the malt that's made out there is really made to be turned into kind of industrial beer. So that's- over the years, malt has gotten better yields, better disease resistance, but also it's been specifically selected for higher enzymatic power, um, greater
2: yield yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like the hop situation too where uh modern hop farms are trying to plant alpha they're trying to you know get more alpha yield per acre because that's money to them exactly and uh you know we're getting away from some of these uh, historic varieties like saws and and uh, hollertow which don't have as much yield per acre may have very uh desirable aromas that uh, craft brewers are looking for but in terms of the big brewers they want they just want alpha. They don't care so much about, you know, the the specific aromas that a, a craft brewer might be looking for. And I can see why the same thing is happening in barley, where we're getting away from some of these older varieties that may have a little more uh character to them as we go to a, a larger yield.
1: Well, let me get on my soapbox here. You know, uh this is why when somebody has something that's, you know, uh 25 cents more per pound and it's a you know a, a product that's going to provide better flavor in your beer it's worth paying a few extra cents it's like you know supporting those companies that that support uh, you know craft beer and and those those companies that uh, you know in your local homebrew shop and all that uh well worth supporting it it may be a couple extra bucks per balance, per batch of beer uh but uh yeah, you know, well worth it. Don't 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 skimp on it. You know, the the malt is important. Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
6: you know, without a doubt. And I, I would say that you know, price does not necessarily True. guarantee you quality. But uh, if, you know, if you're if you're getting something really unique, um, you know, you 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 may have to, and you, you know, I'm sure you probably will have to pay a higher price for it. Well, there's then, a me... lot of things as maltsters, we could do and we'd like to do for brewers, mm-hmm. but you know, we can't. Make enough at the premium enough to pay right. a farmer to grow a breed that you know isn't going to yield uh, a, you know a profit for him. You see, you know, so it it's got to carry all the way through the chain and work for everybody. And oftentimes, to get quality, you have to pay for that. So.
1: Well, let me bust your chops over something you don't control, and uh, but I got to ask for my Australian friends: is why can't they get uh, Brees uh, specialty malt products at least in Australia? There's no there's no Brice distributor down there. I looked on the web. Uh, you know, Come um, on,
6: yeah, no, not not in Australia. And we do so we do sell internationally, but um, specialty malt. There's some good specialty malt producers in Australia. So um,
1: yeah, but you guys produce a couple of unique things that I think uh, you know, people around the world would would really like to have.
6: Well, we produce a wider variety of malt than than anybody on the planet because you know, we we uh, we produce organic malt and we also produce six row and two row specialty malts. Like a lot of European guys, only do two rows, uh, so we already make a, a wider a variety. But we're just not economically competitive, and I mean we'd be glad to ship a, a container to Australia to anybody who wants to
1: to buy one. Uh, A container. How about a few sacks?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know... (laughs) Or buy me a plane ticket to to, to Australia and...
1: uh, I'll load up my suitcase with uh, just malt. Yeah, well, it's oh, gotta we'll, tell John we'll Preston to there. order a container. I mean,
6: yeah, any of the you know, briefs and any any of the specialty monsters or yeah. most of them. Uh, you know, that's really what we do is we take care of special needs. And um, you know, Australia is just not a, a market that we can be competitive in, just due to, to shipping costs. We also don't ship very much to to Europe. Um, yeah. So you will see uh, some especially maltsters, uh, malts, even in areas where they aren't aren't economically competitive, where they make something that's um, very unique. So, for example, smoked malt. You know, there's smoked malt. It's a great malt, and everybody wants to have it uh, mm-hmm. for certain recipes. But there's really only a couple that are commercially available. You know, there's a Wehrman one, and a, uh, I think Chris makes one. It's a peated malt and a, a smoked malt. And, and they have very different characters. Right. So... Um, we're actually this, this year we're going to be producing a smoke malt as a limited oh, one cool. time thing
1: and I'll have to get me some
6: necessarily, yeah we don't necessarily expect to make money on it we're really mm-hmm. doing it more to, to show our support of the industry
1: yeah um, that, I like Brees as a as a company I think you guys have the right attitudes yeah. and. Uh, um,
2: it's, it well, shows okay. in all the employees I've met Monica and I've met um, Bernadette and, and lots of other sure. people there and
6: in we're all brewers, and we we love you know the industry, and we'd actually like to do a lot more, but you know there's there's limitations to it. Yeah. Rye malt is another good example. We make a rye malt, but um, we uh, were looking at discontinuing it at one point because uh, we make a rye malt has higher oil content, and after about six months, it actually will you know, uh, start to go ring.
1: So, so brewers so. out there, that start making more rye beers. Right. Well, know,
6: everybody loves Rye Malt. Yeah. It's a neat right. malt. It's interesting. Yeah. But the problem is everybody loves it, but nobody buys there's, it. There's so. nothing
1: to replace it either. I mean, if Rye Malt right. goes away, you're not going to be able to make those beers that you make uh, a couple times a year uh, that require Rye Ra- Malt. It's, a, it's, a, it's right. a big problem.
6: But somebody's got to buy it or nobody's going to make it. So, I mean, here we've got basically the smallest production malt house in North America, or in the United States at least, and... Um, and we make one batch a year, which is 40,000 pounds of truckload. And, and we were having problems selling that. I'm sorry, we make one batch every six months. We were having problems selling that before it went bad. And uh. typically, we were selling half the batch to cattle
7: uh.
6: um, because we couldn't sell it to breweries. So everybody loves the small but nobody buys. It.
1: You know, so. that's a real shame. And, and, you know, when I went to Australia, I was reminded that apparently on one of the shows I said I would, put a couple of bags, Ziploc bags of uh, various malts in my luggage and take it down with me. <laughs> and nobody reminded me of that. I, I, I honestly would have done it. A couple of, you know, Brees uh, products. I would have, I would have put, uh, you know, 20 or 30 pounds in my, my luggage because I don't bring a lot of clothes. T-shirts and shorts don't take up a whole lot. And I would have given it away. People are like, did you bring the malt that you said you'd bring? And I'm like, uh, nobody reminded me, and I drink heavily, so I don't really... Uh, Don't really remember that. Hey, Bob, uh, I really appreciate your time. Can you stick with us through the break and uh, answer some listener questions? Do you have that time? I I know we're intruding on your family time, so I really appreciate this.
6: Well, no, like I said, you know, they're upstairs on a sugar rush. I think I hear them crying (laughs) over the monitor, so I'm I'm glad to be here in the shelter of this room. uh, And, you know, you guys, we get together and we talk technical, and it, it may be... You know, maybe this is too high. So I'd love to. I'd love to respond to to some, question. Some questions.
1: Okay, we'll be back right after this.
0: Brew right, brew smart, brew strong. This is brew strong.
5: Hey, Push, the new brewery's looking good. Thanks, Finn. Piece by piece. Well, let's fire her up. Whoa! Is that a new kettle? Yeah, just
1: got it brand new, but paid half price. What? And that blade scale? 40% off. And the new tap handle? Five bucks instead of 13. Got a new regulator for the brew stand, too, but five bucks instead of 25.
5: Dude, where are you stealing all this stuff from? Where
1: else? The more beer deal of the day.
5: Announcing the beer, beer, and more beer deal of the day. Every day, a new fantastic deal from big items to small that will blow you away boil kennels carboy carriers sterile siphon starters digital timers watch morebeard.com every day for a new deal and you just might find the item you've been waiting for at a price you cannot believe hurry because stock is limited on most items and that sweet guinness cap let me guess the The more More beer beer deal deal of the day. day yeah i knew it come on let's brew something Find the More Beer Deal of the Day at morebeer.com.
10: Celebrity voices impersonated. Hi, I'm Sean O'Sullivan, the brewmaster and co-founder of the 21st Amendment Brewery and Restaurant in San Francisco. Six years ago, Nico Frecci and I opened the 21st Amendment on 2nd Street with the intent of bringing back the local neighborhood brewpub. Well, the neighborhood has really changed over the years, but the 21st Amendment still remains a great place for people to meet over a terrific meal and a tasty pint of beer. In the past, the only way you could enjoy the 21st Amendment's handcrafted beers was at the brewpub. Well, all that has changed. Now, the 21st Amendment beers are a Available in cans. That's right, cans. When was the last time you had a great beer in a can? Well, that day has come. We're offering our world-famous watermelon wheat and Twenty One A IPA in cans. Cans are a better package than glass because cans keep the beer fresher longer. But you can also take cans to places where bottles can't go, like the beach, lake, golf courses, and sporting events. So join us in the revolution to take back the can from the big breweries and crack open a cold Twenty One A craft beer in a can. The Twenty First Amendment, Five Sixty Three, Second Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park.
1: Okay, I rolled a 15 and I get a plus 2 from my
5: yeast starter. Nope, sorry. You failed your roll. Your beer is infected. No way! You had to be at a 24. It's schizo This sucks! I just failed versus oxidation! Our party is fracked! Doug's the only one left and his beer is a Berliner Weiss!
0: What's this? A tea party?
5: Hey, this is a brew session, man. Get
1: lost! Is that an actual beer?
5: Yeah, I crafted it. I don't really uh, use the dice anymore. I'm a 10th level beer nerd. Cool. Are you a 10th level beer nerd? Does your significant other know the difference between an Irish red ale and a Flanders red ale? Do you burp, drizzle, spalt, and fart YEast2308? Then you're in good company at Northern Brewer. Northern Brewer has all your beer nerd needs ingredients, equipment, and knowledge 24 hours a day at northernbrewer.com. Plus, fast, cheap shipping, only seven ninety nine for the contiguous USA. And check out Northern Brewer's huge selection of dorky beer kits, including the socially awkward Patters beer and the sci fi convention showstopper number eight. Make 10th level at
3: northernbrewer.com.
5: This is
3: Sit down next to it, grab yourself a paper towel, and watch those yeast have sex. You're,
0: you're listening to The Brewing Network. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys
1: look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're talking malt analysis with uh, Bob Hansen at uh, Brees Malting and uh, my buddy John Palmer. Hey, you know, we
2: should tell everybody where Brees Malting is located.
1: I mean, people may may not know that. In Wisconsin? No. Chilton? Yes? Yeah. Chilton? Chilton, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. See, you know, I've been to the website enough that I think I I know that. I'd like to visit somewhere.
6: They they probably still don't know where that is because we're we're the... uh, County seat of a county with thirty thousand
1: people. Uh, well, and, and, and maybe we greedy, we so. pronounced it wrong. It's Wisconsin. Exactly. It's not Wisconsin. Wisconsin. It's Wisconsin.
6: Yeah, we're we're uh, we're just uh, we're just southwest of Green Bay, there.
1: Ah, Green Bay. Yeah, yeah put on the cheese days. head. Mm-hmm. Go to the game. Packers. Go Packers. The Packers. Go Packers. All right. You know, uh, I, love, I love I love I love that whole area. I love the people. The people yeah. are you know it's it's kind of like Australia. Great people in Wisconsin. Yeah. That whole that whole part of the country. Good, kind, you know, solid people. I got I got I got to tell a story.
2: <laughs> well, back in 2000, when I first met Bob um, at John's Waffling. Go sorry, on. but uh, waffle I, on. I, I I landed in Milwaukee, and Bob had provided directions on how to drive up to uh, to Chilton, and uh, it was January. And there's snow all over the ground. Like you know, week two weeks after Christmas. And as I'm I'm driving along, I'm listening to the radio, and like the uh, the, the the Packers are on. They're, they're in the uh, I guess in the playoffs. And as I'm driving along, you know these country roads in Wisconsin, snow covered towns and so on. You see the you see the snowman. You see the inflatable snowman all with cheeseheads yeah. Oh, yeah but but then you see the inflatable green bay packers in every yard that i passed i mean you know there's christmas like religion here and and the green bay packers yeah, they're, inflatable
1: they're passionate people out there yeah they, they you know they're they're loyal uh loyal people you know they're not they're, not, you, know, they're not, you know they're not you know yeah and you get, you, you get to the, the the big cities and the the coasts and the people out there are wonderful too but I don't know. They lose some of that that, that loyalty and uh, dedication that, uh, that I think focus, is, yeah, you know. well, you know, the 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 hard work and, you know, I, I don't know. It's a different ethic. You know, great people everywhere, but I, I appreciate that Midwest uh, mentality.
7: Well, it,
6: it's not like Southern California. I mean, here basically for uh, about three months if you're outside for more than, you know. 15 minutes unprotected you die so there's, there's a real motivation to work and be at work where it's nice and warm Or you know southern california it's like hey that's true nice here at the beach not at the office so, yeah you
1: yeah. can't fault those people either you know <laughs> it's like well, i don't know if it's, take it's, it's of genetics.
6: It. i don't know if it's genetics or you know the latitude or, or maybe it's the environment because
1: you know oh, there you go see again bob hansen very smart guy. I always learn something when I when I speak with Bob. All right, Bob, well, you know... One, you come visit in February. I, I've been, I've been uh, to uh, 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 Minneapolis-St. Paul in uh, January. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got relocated there for work one time and didn't just spent a whole bunch of time wandering around there. Not so bad. It's a dry cold. You know, people oh, yeah. don't talk about that. I it's was there. Triangle. I was there wearing, you know, the st- same stuff I wear in yeah, San and Francisco you know, in
6: for about four months.
1: Yeah, in San Francisco, you know, it's like forty-five, and I am like in my coat and my blue jeans and stuff. I went to, I had no other cold clothes. Went to, to uh, Minneapolis, and it was minus four, and I was fine. I came back out to San Francisco. Oh, was cold as could. We got a couple of people that work out there, that, that live out there, and and they come out to San Francisco and they're freezing. They're shivering. I'm like, "Why are you guys shivering? You you live in uh, Minneapolis where it's not it snows all the time." They go, "No, it's much colder out here. It's the moisture, the the, the sea moisture. The, you know, it just zaps the the, the, the heat out of you. It's, it's that, like that
6: relative the mo- humidity again. High relative humidity turns your body into a heat exchanger. Yeah, so. exactly."
1: Um... I got one last question for you before we get to the uh, listener questions, which is, uh, all right, so let's boil this down to a homebrewer malt analysis. Now, let's get you know low-tech, real simple. So we've, we've looked at the sheet, and one of the things that I, I consider malt analysis is, before I brew, any of the grains that I'm weighing out, I take a little taste. I look at them, I smell them, I take a little taste, I maybe try and squish them in my fingers. If they're mealy or something like that, I mean, what should I, what should I look for? When I taste that,
6: well, a, a taste is important because, regardless of uh, you know what uh, any sort of typical analysis that we might provide, and again, I think that's really the numbers that homebrewers want to look at is the typical analysis that are provided by brewers because or provided by maltsters because the specifics of batch to batch variability aren't as important on the homebrewing basis. But that said, so. those numbers are great, but nothing replaces tasting your ingredients because. That's what you know. Those were the, the results when we analyzed it in the lab at our location, and who knows what happened to it by the time it got to you. I mean, there's a lot of great homebrew shops out there, and but you know things happen. So there's a few bad always, ones out there too. <laughs> yeah, I mean you should always taste your ingredients, I and mean, if yep. you know if you find uh, anything wrong, if, or if you're suspicious uh, about them, so if what, they're really, I would say when I when I buy into the malt, malt flavors, when holo- I, flavors. I bite into
1: the malt, what am I looking for?
6: Um, Well, nobody, I would say, um, has ever replaced the value of the chew test. And this is true even of big brewers. They still do, besides just making warts from their malt, they also do the chew test. So look for a good flavor. Um, I would also say, you know, look at the texture a little bit. Malt is a um, low-moisture product, even the specialty malt. And when you chew them, you'd expect them to be basically slightly crunchy. If they're really soft... Um, that may indicate that they picked up moisture and they're not being stored properly, or they weren't stored properly at some point in their life. You know, what kind of off flavors um, do we look for? I'm just you know musty, uh, moldy. You know, again, I, I think the biggest thing you need to look out for is you know people might be storing it in uh, higher relative humidities, so and not not all maltsters. In fact, Breeze, uh, our normal bag for malt is not a doesn't have a poly liner. It's just a, it's just a triple layer bag. So if you store it in an area that's 100% relative humidity while it's being transferred or stored somewhere, and it's there for a couple of weeks, and then it gets you know transferred to your homebrew shop, and they have it in the basement, and then they bring it up and whatever else, you know, I, I would say look for moldy, musty, any sort of off flavors. It should be clean and malty tasting, you know,
7: and crisp um, and crunchy
6: style. Yeah, and Um tasting tasting black malt and chocolate malt. Um, yeah. Off flavors there. Hmm. Well, it tastes pretty bad. It's kind of funny because, you know, if you've ever tasted cocoa, it tastes like crap, too. So, uh,
7: <laughs> chocolate
6: malt, black malt. Nobody eats coffee grounds or chocolate malt, but, you know, or, you know, or cocoa. Um, but, you know.
1: But they're pretty stable.
6: Yeah, they, they're very stable, but in, in, in they're not as big of a concern. But, you know, I think any ingredient that you have. Um, I think the best way to learn how to be a good brewer, and this is what I used to teach brewers when I was working in the pubs, is taste your beer all the way through the process. Taste your ingredients in the beginning. Uh, We just had a return, um, because I also manage the quality department. We just had a return where the brewer tasted the ingredients, and they tasted bad. And then they brewed a batch of beer with them, and they tasted bad. And, you know, uh, we ended up taking care of the problem, and we're not quite sure of... What happened with the original ingredients? But we said, look, you know, if you taste it up front and it tastes bad, just we would prefer that you don't mm-hmm. brew with it and send us a sample so we can figure it out. It, it's same yeah. same with in you know, a home brewers. It's like when you know one of the best things you can do. Yeah, you have got that analysis, but you should taste all your ingredients. Mm-hmm. You should smell your hops. You should crush them. You should make sure that you've got you know good aromas and flavors there. And same with your malt. You know, throw a couple kernels in your mouth and, and see what they taste like. It should have a good, clean, malty flavor. It should have a nice crunch to it uh, for specialty malts. Um, even for base malt, it should be fairly crunchy. If it's really soft and slack, it may indicate that the malt was not stored in the best conditions. and mm-hmm. may have picked up moisture. If it's any sort of musty or, or grassy flavor, um, you know, don't use it.
1: I, I think that's... Perhaps the, the the best advice that we've gotten out of this whole thing. I mean, all the other information is very interesting and, and useful, but I think that's you know kind of the the key breakdown. And I and I know you know the folks at Breeze, uh, you know, quality products. But I know that uh, you know their main concern is that uh, the customers have uh, uh, you know make great beer from it. And and uh, if there's any problem, I know I know uh, you guys have quality is. Uh, I wouldn't say job one because that's somebody else's trademark, but uh, uh, you, you guys do a good thing there, and I'm, I'm really pleased to
3: uh, be able to use your products.
1: All right, so we have some uh, questions from the listener chat, Justin?
3: Yep, few questions, and uh, just in case you guys haven't blown Bob enough tonight, uh, I just wanted Bob's to point out guy, that uh, Bob Tur- is one of the few guests who turned me into a listener tonight. I've listened uh-huh. to every word you've uh-huh. had to say, Bob. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, you All really. Right, I don't pay attention to anybody, but uh, man, I can't <laughs> stop listening to you. You really have a lot of information, so thanks. Uh, let's see what we got from the chat for you, though. Um, here's a good question that came through. Somebody asked the difference between American and European malts. Uh, maybe a good example of that is um, American pills, pills,
1: Continental pills,
3: versus Continental something something like that. What are the differences that we're looking at when we see those?
6: Um, I guess American malts versus European malts. First off, in America in general, you see, um, I would say, a lot more use of six-row malts um, across the board. It's more of the standard here in America because, you know, a lot of our beers are high-adjunct brews. And so the big maltsters are demanding six-row um, malt and uh we also have the unique you know kind of ability to make six row specialty malts because six row is the predominant malt here um you know we make six row and two row malts so in general between europe and america you don't see a lot of six row malts in europe you see more in america then when you get to um you know specifically if you start to look at things like pilsner malts and what are the differences between american produced pilsner and uh, european pilsner um, there you got to start to look at you know uh, varietal differences. And if you look at a uh, pilsner produced by an American brewer, a pils type malt that's made to duplicate a European malt, using that type of uh, breed of a malt and um, you know using those malting conditions. So say making a, a slightly under modified, uh, low protein, two row malt that would be you know more on the lines of what the the continental pilsner is. Um, you don't really see a lot of differences differences you might see would be you know subtle differences due to to climate um i think in general in europe you'll see there's one or two malts that are actually unique um because of say the the seed choice uh, that they're using and that would be maybe and maybe the malting technique so something like a maris otter Um, it's a pretty unique malt and nobody in the u.s is making something like that but when it comes to just like a Pilsner malt, if you're getting a, a true, you know, low-protein, 2 real under malt produced kind of along that tradition, you won't see a lot of difference between American Pilsner malts, uh, like the one we make
3: and, and what you see from, from Europe. Okay. Uh, <coughs> here's another good question that came through from the chat. Uh, what standards, controls, or processes are in place to ensure that maltsters produce the same type of malt? And an example the listener gave was: if I buy C75 from one maltster, is there any coordination with other maltsters producing the same malt, so that if we buy C75 from a couple places, we can expect the same thing?
6: Um. Yes. And no. Really, when you buy a C75, what you can expect is that you'll get a, a 75 lover bond because that's what they're specifying it. Um, a lot of people produce them. Um, with, uh, there's a couple different techniques to making caramel malt one is to produce it on a roaster which is uh really what may, mainly all the europeans are doing and uh, that's really what we do here at brice as well uh all our, all our caramel malts are true crystal malts they're produced on a roaster so that you'd expect every kernel to be uh, you know roughly a little kernel of 75 livebon malt truly consistent all the way through all the same color um produced in a batch um also, here in America, there are some people that make um, kilned caramel malts. And so basically what they do is they just turn the heat way up in a kiln. Well, the kiln isn't a roaster that roasts a single batch in the course of a couple hours. It, you know, it, it, it roasts a huge amount. It, it basically dries a huge amount of malt over the course of a couple of days. And uh, it can't apply as high of a temperature, and it doesn't have good agitation or stirring, where a drum roaster is kind of like a cement mixer. It's constantly stirring, so you get a, a uniform product. Kiln-roasted malts um, are are much less consistent. You'll get some that are actually mealy, some that are glassy, um, and they may be uh, the same level of grading, but the product will be different. So just because uh, one maltster produces a malt doesn't mean that, you know with a certain name or certain number, it doesn't mean that it will be same across the board with different monsters that said um, the, t- the question was really you know what controls do do monsters have individually um, they really they specify their seed source um, and it must meet certain parameters and then they typically throughout the multi process control the addition of of um, of water, they control the temperature throughout germination to control the germination uh, process, and then during the kilning or drying process, um, or roasting, which is also a drying process, they really can uh, they really control the relative humidity and the temperature, so they can c- get cons- consistent results.
3: All right. Um Another question is uh, I'm really glad you guys brought up at the beginning of the show uh, temperature storage of malts, and one of the things that you kept uh, mentioning Bob was um, if it really is a moisture protective bag or or container that you're that you're sealing it in. so what are we talking about when we say moisture protective? Somebody mentioned you know vacuum sealed bags is is that what you're talking about? Are there other things we should be looking for?
6: Well, I mean, vacuum vacuum sealing is great. Um, uh, Normally, plastics, uh, you want to get, and and almost any plastic you're going to buy as a consumer is going to be that's intact is going to be an effective moisture barrier. Um, But, you know, you're going to want to seal the bag with a twist tie or something that's going to, you know, allow it to seal because even there you can get, uh, depending on how you seal the opening to the bag, you can can get air ingress. Um, Really something that's going to prevent... The movement of air in and out, and almost all bags be good. Typical uh, bags that might not be good are certain, uh, like um, grocery bags. Typically, they don't have; uh, they're not uh, completely non-porous. Or like plastic uh,
2: grocery bags, you know the. the
6: Yeah, exactly. They you know they're they're not of the material that's necessarily going to completely prevent long-term ingress of moisture. Uh, Basically, the, the moisture barrier isn't is good. Um, and, and, uh, and then you also have to look out for, uh, and certain garbage bags are like that, too. Mm-hmm. But almost any plastic bag or pail that you can um, get a good seal on uh, has, a, has a, a gasket that will seal, will be a good moisture barrier.
1: Well, and, and, and moisture, uh, moisture is so much larger than an oxygen molecule, so a lot of, a lot of the plastics are not very um, good at preventing oxygen. Uh, there, there's some like the, the plastics that the food wraps are made of are, are good against stopping oxygen, but uh, a lot of them aren't. Uh, but uh, in the the water molecules being so much larger, uh, you yeah, know that that also. Uh, uh, I think there's a few more plastics that'll that'll stop the uh, moisture.
6: Yeah, and a lot of times it's the seam, and it's really only the really thin plastics in hmm. general, that, uh, you know, that you really have to worry about, but. Normal plastic and even pails too. If it if pails may have a cover on them, but if there's not the a gasket, there, they're probably not
7: sealing airtight.
1: Right. You can buy special uh, uh, buckets that have the uh, screw-on seals, and they got yep. the rubber gaskets and, you, and all those. They're yep. a little expensive, a little but I imagine you put you put your grain in there. That that'll uh, store for
3: years without a problem.
6: Yep, and and very convenient too.
3: Someone in the chat right now is wondering if we can put our malt in condoms. Would that be? Would that be safe?
6: Uh, Two oxygen
1: permeable.
3: Okay. Thank you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Well, lubed or (laughs) unlubed? You don't want to uh, interfere with the malt flavor. So I would say. Those are designed to be thin. (laughs) Right. Moisture barrier, but thin. Okay. Pleasure 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 for him. (laughs) Uh, I guess it'll depends on right. what he's
6: going to do with them
7: afterwards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, another
6: good point. Some other intended use.
3: It sounds to me like you can take the uh, the same rule applies to your condoms as it does your plastic bags. If they're thin, probably not a good uh, storage unit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go Don't try and interchange plastic bags and condoms. <laughs> yeah,
1: either either use. All
3: right. The uh, That's it from the chat, but I do want to say they brought it like a mile. And, uh, Bob, thanks. Uh, back to you guys. All right. Uh, Let me
1: summarize here. All right, so I think what we learned today is, um, you know, malt analysis is important, probably more so for the mega brewers that are looking to shave, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, where money. where it costs them millions, uh, you know, when, when the analysis changes. And and what the homebrewer should look at is, all right, uh, you, sh- you should definitely look at it at least once. You yeah. know, for the, the brand of malt you're using and, uh, you know, if you're going with the same malt, or if you, let, let's say, for example, you're buying Brees uh, two-row, you, know, you can look at their malt analysis. And they're trying to keep it close year after year. They don't want to, you know, wildly change things, you know, because they, they've right. dialed it into the best... Possible product they could make, uh, and they're going to try and keep it that way. So you can assume it's pretty close year to year, regardless of environmental factors. It may change, and you can briefly look at it every once in a while, but you're pretty close, and there's other factors in your brewing that are going to make more of a difference in extract and flavor and things like that right. than uh, process
2: parameters and you know, the malt analysis. And
1: uh, yep. If you're if you're doing a you know like 100 percent Munich mash or using a lot of adjuncts, you're gonna you want to look at the DP and see you know you got at least uh, once you average everything out, you got at least 50 DP, right? Right. Uh, you know, if, yep. so if you got 100 uh, DP, you can use about half adjuncts and still be around 50, and and you may need to uh, make some adjustments in time and temperature in order to uh, properly make things convert. Uh, but uh, generally you're okay. I think most home brewers aren't aren't going along those lines, but that's all right. And probably the most important thing is a taste test. So, you know, the the home brewers uh, or, you know, any brewer, you know, uh, for my friends in Australia, the amateur brewer uh, test is, uh, you know, to take a a taste, a few grains of everything you're going to put in your beer and, uh, you know, smell your hops, things like that. and uh, should be crunchy, should be malty, should be uh, you know uh, clean, free of uh, any sort of rancid or off, musty, uh, musty moldy, yeah. uh, moldy type, type of flavors. And I've tasted malt like that before. i tossed it, and, it, and if you store your malt properly, uncrushed, uh, you know, seal it from the air, uh, moisture, things like that, uh, lasts quite a long time. It's it's surprising how how stable that stuff is. Uh, you know, so so try and store it uh, airtight if you can. I think this is a, a real good show, and I really appreciate you being here with us, Bob, on such short notice. Uh, you, of Thanks course, were our number one choice for this show. So uh, <laughs> the fact that you were able to do it for us, uh, we really appreciate. You were uh, uh, one of my favorite people in all of all of uh, professional brewing.
6: Well, it's been a pleasure for me. So it's my first time. I think it was uh, a bit too technical, but uh, no,
1: no, know. no, not for yeah. our, our, our crew. Yeah. We we put the what is the, the testicles and technical, technical or yes. something like. that. <laughs> I heard that on the edge. Hilarious! <laughs> and uh, are you going to make it out for the uh, two thousand nine uh, Homebrewers Conference in uh, San Francisco?
6: I will. This uh, this last one was the first one that I missed.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I've seen it. Bl- uh, sorry, I missed it too. I was dying of pneumonia, but uh, it'll be good to oh, see okay. you out. And uh, let me let me take you out to dinner or something and. Uh,
3: Show you our appreciation, Uh-oh. just from the homebrew community. Come to San Francisco. Jamil takes you out take to dinner. Down. Maybe a little, little <laughs> waka-waka-waka. <walka, walka. laughs> <laughs> what, what is that?
1: That's my little uh, high-pitched porn voice there. <laughs> I yeah, see. Yeah. Good. Bob has a great sense of humor, which is another thing. <laughs> All right. right.
6: Yeah, well, I, yeah, especially with that last caller, it's important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We are going to do another Brew Strong show right after this. If you're listening live, hang on. And we're going to be doing dry hopping with my good buddy, uh, Tasty McDole, which I think the thing people don't know is he's very much into dry hopping. talks to a lot of uh, pro brewers uh, and a lot of scientists about uh, dry hopping. And uh, he's giving me the stink eye here. But uh, he actually knows quite a bit about dry hopping and makes some great <laughs> beers with the uh, dry hopping. And uh, don't forget, if you get a chance, you know, click on uh, the various links and uh, at the Brewing Network, and uh, you know, uh, get a, uh, a subscription to BYO. Both John sure. and I write uh, for BYO, and. Uh, uh, we you see us there every every issue, and right. I do styles. John does technical, and uh, you know, well worth it. And the, if you buy it from thebrewingnetwork.com, dot uh, com, the Brewing Network gets a little cut of the proceeds, and uh, that helps uh, keep us on the air as well. Get some shirts, get some glassware. I love the new glasses. Some Brewing Classic styles. Brewing Classic styles now now signed by both John and myself. Because John's here in the studio, he has to fly up for these shows, and so uh, while he's here, we make him sign books. The whip marks don't really show on his back. You know, <laughs> I'm g- happy gave, to do g- it. We gave him a hoodie to uh, hide the whip marks, but uh, uh, you know, he's, he's doing it quite well. Anyways, we'll be back uh, in just a few minutes if you're listening live, if you're listening on the podcast, get yourself over to TheBrewingNetwork.com, and when we're doing the shows, it'll tell you when we're doing them live, and you can join in the chat and participate in the show live. Brew strong, everybody. Take care.